this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. You know, the subtitle for my book, Built to Sell, is called Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. Why? Because I think that's the ultimate poker hand in the game of life. If you've got a business that can succeed without you doing all the work, you've got lots of options, right? You could sell it. You could bring in a manager. You could sell part of it. Lots of options. And I think the prerequisite for building a business that can thrive without you is having standard operating procedures. Having a set of guidelines where you can delegate your most important tasks and projects to your team and have them do them just as well as you would do them. We've just developed a brand new ebook and you can get a free copy at builttosell.com slash SOP. It will give you the instructions for creating SOPs. It'll tell you what to document, the difference between auditory learners and visual learners and kinetic learners, and how you can make sure your SOPs relate to all those different types of individuals. Again, go to builttosell.com slash SOP to download a free copy of the ebook. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Warlow, and this is the podcast where we help you punch above your weight when it comes to exiting your company. And my next guest, Pete Ingram Couchy, did just that. He built a company called ID Tech. He sold it for $200 million. There are a lot of lessons Pete shares in this story. A couple of the ones that I want you to take away is the pros and cons of doing a private equity round of investments. As you will hear, Pete took a minority shareholding from a private equity group, and he talks about the pros and the cons of that. Overall, the experience was excellent, and that's the first thing to note. However, he does have a few cautions, and he'll list out three things you've got to watch out for if you're going to take private equity investments. I'm not going to ruin his or steal his thunder. I'll let him describe those three things. But I want you to listen specifically for that because I know you're probably getting pitched all the time by these private equity groups and at least understanding both the pros and the cons of taking some money is exactly what Pete Ingram Couchy does in this wide-ranging interview. Enjoy Pete Ingram Couchy. Pete Ingram Couchy, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. ID Tech, you guys started out doing camps for kids who wanted to learn about technology, in particular coding. Is that, am I getting that right? We started in 1999. Um, my parents were both educators. And uh, my sister and I had recently graduated from the University of Washington in Seattle. And, um, you know, my dad being, being an educator and a principal um, in, in Silicon Valley is like, what's all this computer stuff? Like, all these kids are talking about computers, but we, don't, we have no idea what's going on. Um, so we just thought that there was this little niche that we started with um, running a couple of summer camps at, on university campuses um, here in Silicon Valley. And we, you know, grew the business org- organically. And 20 years later, we, um, you know, it eventually led to, to the next chapter, which is why I'm talking to you today. Love it. So the original concept was camps on campuses. Stanford is obviously the most storied yeah. campus. Did you ever do anything on Stanford? Um, Stanford, you know, our, our, our camp held at Stanford was massive, um, our, and, and then we, you know, we rolled out to campuses like longstanding relationships, uh, camps held at MIT, awesome. at um, Caltech, UCLA, and, did you and we borrow, expanded into Asia. Yeah, go ahead. Did you borrow the brand equity of those schools in order to increase the cachet? I don't mean in a nefarious way or, or a yeah. way that is in any way illegitimate, but did you say, hey, come to, come to the Stanford campus and get an ID tech course on how to code? Like, was it part of the marketing? I think that, you know, we didn't really realize that that, that may, um, 
you know, that may have had some importance, but that was really never the, um, never the goal. What we wanted to actually do was introduce kids to these technical topics and give them a taste of, you know, being on campus at a university. Like, how cool is that? I mean, I, and part of this was, I think, ex- expressed through my own childhood when I would go to camps. I went to a camp several years at Santa Clara University and just being exposed to, you know, what is it like to stay in the dorms and eat the food and rub shoulders with college students and learn technology from really energetic staff. Um, so cool. It kind of influences the, it, it influences your thinking um, as, as a kid. And then over time, um, it was just, it was more than anything um, beyond maybe, maybe the marketing was just really the, um, it was a great business model, right? Um, we were able to replicate the model and expand to, you know, 150 locations, uh, top university locations in the U.S. and in, into Asia and into U.K. Um, so cool. And then COVID hit. And now we're rebooting those summer camps. We, we pivoted to digital and now we're rebooting those summer camps for summer 2022. So I want to get into that. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I relate to this. My kids are just kind of getting into that college stage where they're starting to evaluate where to go to school. And, and so the idea of, I, I'm trying to describe what a university campus is like. And, and for them, it's so esoteric, so weird. Like I, I like it, but I'm like, you got to go, you got to be on camp. You got you to yeah. eat the food. You got to see the square yeah. and you got to kind of feel it. And so this was a, a cool glimpse for young kids, K to 12, but I th- I'm assuming mostly high school kids to really get a, a true sense of these yeah. campuses. We, um, you know, we started, you know, we'll, well, kids will come to our camps starting at age seven. Wow. Um, and how cool is that? They get a little, um, like let's say here in the Bay area in El- in Los Angeles or New York and they'll try, okay, let's just take New York. Like they could try, you know, our coding classes or game design classes at NYU and then tr- also try a week at, um, Columbia. Um, right. I mean, so that we have a, a lot of different campuses and it gives you exposure to, to the feel of those campuses. And a lot of parents, I mean, love that. I love that for my own oh, kids. For sure. all, all three of my kids have gone through ID tech for, for several seasons. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of like before you actually invest in that, whatever, $60,000 a year education, maybe try a thousand dollar camp with ID tech and, and get that exposure and the technical skills. Um, it's before you a, make that huge investment, right? It's such a good concept. I'm surprised there weren't more competitors. I want to ask you about competitors, but before we get to competitors, just tell me the business model. So let's say Caltech. Um, yep. Caltech's dead in the summertime. You're like, hey, let's do summer camps. Do you rent the space for them? Do they do they give it to you for free? Like, how, What's the business model piece behind this? Yeah, to the every, extent that you can every contract we have is customized. Um, okay. Some can be can be rental agreements. Some can be, it really depends on the need of the university. Some of them are looking to us as a marketing vehicle, right? So they want to, oh, for they, sure. they look to us to provide exposure for their future students. And it's, it's more of a pipeline story. So it really depends on, on the university and, and what their needs are. Um, and we were talking some, off- some univers- Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, we were talking offline when, when you started, it, it, you know, it wasn't some Silicon Valley finance business with hundreds of millions of dollars of that. You, you bootstrapped it from the beginning. Yep. Um, did that ever change? Did you bootstrap all the way or did you raise money at some point? What was that like? We, um, we raised money <laughs> at year 15 when we were at, when we were quite profitable. Um, and really the impetus for that was, um, we, my, my sister, my mom, myself, and our key employees had not really ever taken any chips off the table. Um, and so we've been investing and we didn't pay ourselves much money at all. So we wanted to take care of, um, you know, take care of some of our employees. And at that moment we created an employee stock pool, um, basically, uh, gave 20% of the company to our employees, um, which, you know, you fast forward, seven years later, it really benefited a lot of our employees, which we feel great about. Um, but yeah, we, we bootstrapped the entire way. Um, and so I know as an entrepreneur, the day of, you know, I'm answering phone calls at three in the morning and delivering brochures, 
driving around to Los Angeles, literally delivering flyers and brochures to schools, like getting the word out about the program. I mean, we, we all did that, right? I always did all the marketing. Um, my, my mom, you know, bless her, did all of the staffing the first year and, you know, wasn't super familiar with Excel spreadsheets. It was all on pencil and big pieces of paper. Like that's how we did it. Um, and I think kind of like that, that, that magical moment is we just did it. We didn't think about what could go wrong. We just did it. And that's um, awesome. we look back at that. It's, it, it feels great. Yeah. That we built the business and, and grew it organically with, with zero funding. So ballpark. And again, tell me if, if um, you can't share, I'll, but... I'll let you, I'll let you know if you're pushing too hard. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> where, where were you in the trajectory of the business? Like in terms of revenue ballpark, when you decided to take some chips off the table 15 years after starting. Yeah. So we were, um, God, we were probably, I don't know, in the $40 million net rev stage. Got it. Got right. it. Got it. Okay. And so how did you value the business at that stage of the game? Was there a formula you were working from or? Um, I think that we had, um, you know, we had um, at that stage, some advisors, we were, you know, we, we, we had a, a concept of what might be a fair valuation. We kind of, you know, I think it's interesting. Like we, we had an idea, ultimately evaluation is, is what it, it's driven by the market and it's driven by a buyer and a seller. Um, so we ultimately had to arrive at a number that we just, that we felt where we were being valued and the business was being valued fairly. Um, I don't think we overreached. I think we got a, I think our investors got a great deal and I think we got a great deal. Um, so we, we ultimately just came, we, you know, we had an idea in mind about what we thought the business was worth and that number was honored. And so when you it got investors, who, who invested in the business at that stage? Um, at that stage, it was called, uh, uh, still very good friends of mine. Um, so Paul and Brian from Anthos Capital. Um, yeah, so they were um, fantastic partners in the first leg of the journey for the seven years that I worked with them. Um, I can't can't say enough about them um, as a team. Um, but they just you know really believed in our concept and our model, and um, we uh, they were great partners. Right. So let me get this straight. So for the first fifteen years, you're bootstrapping. Your mom's doing stuff. Your sister's doing stuff. You're dropping off brochures, but it's growing because. You got to 40 million. So it was, it was definitely growing every year. It sounds like. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I should say like, you know, after, you know, in, in the early days I was driving brochures and, you know, obviously things evolve. Um, you know, they, they, one of the stories that I have is, I mean, we talked about, you know, the treacherous highway 17, but yeah, yeah. I was Between coming Santa back Cruz from Los Gatos. I was driving computers in a U-Haul from our campus at UC Santa Cruz, driving them over Highway 17. And I was so tired. I had forgot to put the, um, I had forgot to lock up the truck in the back. Apple had, um, Apple had lent us 200 computers to use for the camps. And I had boxed up computers flying out of the back of the truck. This is a real story. Um, to which somebody called me back then on my, in my next telephone. You remember the next telephone? Yeah, yeah, push the talk. Saying, yep. yep. Yeah. Happened to call me um, because they saw me driving off, but they couldn't get a hold of me. So I, I, I did stop the truck and I, I did a lot. I lost four computers um, that so somebody had like picked those up somewhere. Um, so, but these are just the, the fun stories of, of the startup days. So they retired my life and said, you, you know, you stick this uh, building the business. We don't need you driving the truck with computers around anymore. <laughs> got, it. got it. Got it. So you build it up. Yeah. So tell me, because I think, you know, it sounds like uh, Anthos Capital. I, am I pronouncing it correctly to say Anthos yep. Capital? Okay. Yes. So, like that would be a private equity we would think of it as a private equity group. And I'm assuming, again, if I'm going too detailed, you have to push back. So I'm assuming it was sort of a, uh, uh, a kind of second bite of the apple deal where it's like, you know, we're going to buy a chunk of your equity. You can give some to your employees, but you're going to keep some in the business. And then if yes. we're successful years yep. down the road, that other tranche of your equity Exactly. Worth we're just going to go out and, and um, you know, they, they were in, influential in helping us. Um, you know, they brought in, 
a couple of incredibly great board members, which brought in the insights to help us scale. So one of the board members was Howard Behar, um, one of the, uh, you know, one of the first C-level uh, like founders and employees at Starbucks, right? Who hmm. worked with Howard Schultz. They were known as H2O. So Howard to this day I mean, is, is an incredibly great friend and he helped us scale, um, like, you know, really pushed on us to open up in, in Asia. Um, and we did all those things. And so he gets some of the credit. So so, so um, Anthos brought to us not just um, not just additional capital for uh, you know to to help with growth, but also brought in you know helped us uh, create a, a deeper bench in, in the company as well. Got it, and and allowed you to take some chips off the table. Yep. You know, yep. get your mom taking care of you and your sister, some right. of the employees. It, it, it took pressure off because out of fifteen years, you know, maybe on paper we had a lot to show for it, but we had never really taken any money out of the business. Everything was just being used to like plow back into the business, um, and we paid ourselves very modest salaries. So we just felt that like that time was right, and we also. You know, at, at that time, we, you know, bonused out like all of our employees as well. We just thought that it was a good time. And it, and it turned out to be that that was a great decision. Got it. And, and so are we, are you able to share like kind of a multiple at that stage that you sold for or that you got? Yeah, that I don't tranche? know where the confidentiality agreements come into play. So I'm probably just not going to answer that because I don't think, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where the, um, where the threshold is there. And I don't want to go back and dig up contracts. So yeah. um, I, I would just like, just, you know, suffice to say that it was, um, you know, when you're bootstrapping money, like there was, when you're bootstrapping the, um, you know, the, the overall valuation was one in which like, we just, we had to be relatively excited about or else we wouldn't have done the deal. We were excited mm-hmm. about it, but the, the deal was still a minority deal, meaning, um, you know, Anthos came in and they were okay taking a, a minority position in the company, um, which really suited us well. That meant that we could infuse, you know, take care of our employees, take some chips off the table, really focus on growth um, for the next bite of the apple, which we knew would be many, many years away. But everything happened um, the way that we, the way that we kind of envisioned it. I love this because there's so many people right now being pitched this deal from the private equity community. Of course, private equity, as you know, has got tons of cash. They're trying to find deal flow. They've moved down market a lot. And so, right. you know, oftentimes they're, they're looking at companies with $5 million in sales and $8 million and $10 million. I mean, much smaller than you were. And, and, and again, the deal they're getting is like, well, buy 60%. In your case, they bought a less than majority. But that the deal was, we're- to be honest, that was the deal breaker for us. You wanted if to keep they, majority. Yeah. If they wanted, they, and, and that's the reason that we spoke to them. Um, mm-hmm. they, we were introduced because we had spoken with others and it was like um, other, other uh, like private equity firms. And right off the bat was like, no, we take majority. We take majority. We take majority. And we like, we're like, well, we don't, we don't need that much capital. And we are, we are so fired up by the way that we do things with our culture and kind of the, the special views that we take on the business. And we don't want to sacrifice any of that. Um, and I don't want somebody coming in, like telling me one story and then saying, no, we're got to, you know, fit this square peg into a round hole. Like, no, we're not doing that. So we, um, so the, the reason that is like the reason that we ultimately, ultimately ended up doing a deal with Anthos is because we thought they were a great people, very, uh, very aligned with our mission. Um, they loved what we did. Like they had like, re- like, you know, when someone is actually excited about your business by the questions that they ask by the time that they take with you versus somebody who's just trying to, to get a transaction done. Um, and then ultimately we got the valuation and the fact they were willing to take a minority deal meant that they trusted us to move the business forward, right? They trusted us. They sure did. It sounds like, just to be clear, when you say minority, if all the employees of which you gave 20% of the equity in the new entity, it sounds like, had ganged up against you and, and the Anthos team were yeah, all voting they, in the same the, way. Would, would the, it, um, the employees uh, were, were given common, so not, 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 um, they weren't given voting, voting, right. voting rights. Okay. Yeah. okay. And, and I, I've heard a lot lately where people are using these, these super voting shares where they're kind of worth 10 to 1. So right. they... They had, did, did you get involved in any of that so that no. they could, they could have outvoted you if they really wanted to? 
No, we really put together a very meat and potatoes, very simple, simple structure, which was important to us. There was no gamesmanship. It was all very, very simple and straightforward. So anybody, even our employees could understand it Um, because there is there is that perception that um, that can come with, you know, like you talk about the super shares, et cetera. Um, It that just wasn't for us. Yeah, I can hear the dog barking in the background. I I'm love sorry. It. What kind of dog oh, do you have? Okay, so another another story. I did go to the office. The you know I haven't been to the office in quite some time, but I wanted some a quiet spot to do this. So I go to the office, and the internet was down. Oh, no. I had a board meeting this morning, so I had to let everybody on the board know it was gonna be 15 minutes late. So I had to come back home, <laughs> jump on jump on the board meeting, then jump on with you. So I apologize for the dogs. It I I, I know I we it. wanted a quiet space. But this no, is the great. real world. <laughs> so what kind of dog do you have? I have, um, we have two rescue dogs. Um, oh, great. They are, uh, they're absolute mixes and really, really great. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Okay. So we've got a straightforward deal because I think people are listening to this and going, man, this is like a dream come true to be able to hold on to control and take some chips off the table, put some money in your jeans and continue to run the business. It, like, were these, were, like, were these folks at Anthos, like, were they buddies of yours that were like, you know what, we never do this, but because you're a friend, we're going to do this. Like, what no. was it that, how did you get them to give you that deal? They've, they, they've structured um, several deals that way. Um, okay. And I think that's a competitive advantage for them. Um, okay. I believe, and you'll have to check, you know, check the notes, but as an example, like they, um, you know, they were, they invested in honey and then they took a minority position. Um, and then honey ended up, um, being acquired by PayPal and it was, you know, like a $2 billion valuation or something crazy. So, um, they, they have an incredible way of, of, I think finding talent, finding great businesses that are maybe flying a little bit below the radar, but they really differentiate themselves by betting on the entrepreneur. Right. Um, they were, they never came in and said, Hey, we want to restructure everything and you've got to look through it, look at, you know, look at this business through our lens. They basically came in and said, Hey, how can we help you grow? What do you need? Um, Which, what triggered the initial conversation? Did you shop the business? Did they come to you? Like, how did that? Like when, you know, after, you know, I think word got out probably after a decade that, wow, ID tech is becoming this pretty awesome ed tech brand. Like it, it was like our, our profile was raising. So we had like, you know, VC firms and PE firms hitting me up literally every day. Um, so probably, I mean, probably a hundred firms. And I really wasn't interested in any of them um, because they were all kind of had the same. And not to say, I, I probably didn't give it enough time. And I'm sure there would have been a lot of other good partners as well. But Anthos just stuck out by the, um, I mean, the founders came and they flew in, they, they, they spent time with me. They really got to understand the business. Um, and then, like I said, just like the, the structure and the way that they organized or helped us organize the deal, just everybody felt good about it. What was that like to get that amount of money? Like, I'm trying to visualize you, your sister, your mom. I mean, I read some of your backstory before we, you know, we hit record and, you know, I, I think I, I saw a quote saying, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, like you didn't grow up in a lot of money. It wasn't like you, you had a, a ton of, you know, a very affluent, crazy life growing up. You're bootstrapping, dropping off the brochures at the schools. And all of a sudden someone's comes along and not only pays you a whole bunch of money, but also your mom and your sister. Like, I'm trying to imagine what that would feel like. And I would love to know, like, what does that feel like? Well, you know, what's interesting. Um, I've had a lot of discussion about this with my wife and with my family. And we didn't go out and buy like a fancy car or a big house or, you know, fly on private jet, like, like nothing really changed because I'm like, I think it's just the way that we were brought up um, pretty humble and I don't need a massive amount. I don't need a bigger house to be happy. I don't need a faster car to be happy. So um, I was driving around in my Ford Escape. 
And I, the next day I was still driving around in my Ford Escape. Um, it was, it was great. Like we had the money, we put it in the bank. Um, and then we kind of forgot about it. It was just like, okay, keep building the business. I mean, that said, it's, it's, um, in, in, you know, my, my parents, as I said, were educators and, and we lived growing up, we lived month to month. So I know what's, what that's like. I mean, my, my parents, like, you know, my dad worked, uh, worked as a line cook because he was a principal in Milpitas, but he worked as like a line cook to bring in extra income on the weekends. Right. So like, we know what real like white collar work is blue collar work too. And I think that that, um, you know, that really rubbed off on my sister and I, um, as we built the business and with, you know, a lot of my, uh, like just the, the viewpoint that we had in building the business, um, we weren't afraid of hard work. Was so, your mom a shareholder at that time? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And she's, you know, I said like she was instrumental in um, like planting the seed for quality, like whatever we do, it's going to be quality. That's going to cost a lot of, don't care. It's quality. It's quality. And I think that really differentiated what we did versus like, you think of um, a typical summer camp and like really mission driven people, but maybe not super professional or maybe not really well-trained or maybe they're not like you know, dressed in their best or their, you know, that you have that, that perception of what a campus, we really professionalized it. Right. And we, we cared about the quality from customer service to, um, you know, every, we had a, like one of the, one of the hallmarks of what we do is we teach in small groups and we, we guarantee our ratios. It's not like 20 kids in a class. Like we'll have like five kids in a class or three kids in a class, a lot of personalized instruction. So I'm just trying to illustrate there's always that dedication to putting the customer first and really delivering a great product and the rest takes care of itself. And your mom kind of really carried that torch. It sounds like, like yeah. really beating she, the drum on there, there, were, there was no in between. You either do it the right way or don't do it. That was it. Where were you when the wire transfer hit? your bank account when Anthos invested, were you in the same room as your mom? No, no, we were, um, I was out of camp because it happened in July. Um, it happened in July. What was that? 20, 2013 or 2014. Um, and like I said, like we, we knew it was coming. So, I mean, I, I wish I could create this idea that there was like confetti popping and fireworks going off, but I guess it goes back to maybe I'm just, it, it's more meat and potatoes. Like we were just, we were, we were really glad that, that the transaction happened. And it was like the next day is just like back to work. Yeah. But it must have had a, like, it must, it, for, a, for a son and a mom, that bond is so, and a daughter for that matter, but it must it must have just, I just can't imagine being your mom and the pride she would have felt to see your idea validated the she, um, that you bought for yourself. I mean, she yeah, I mean, I know, I know how proud, proud of how proud my mom is of, of my sister and, our, and I, and she's also gotten a chance to meet so many of our teammates that have been with us for, you know, 20, 21, now going on 22 years. Like, she knows like it, it, it's very much family oriented. And so um, there's a lot, there's a lot of pride there. And it makes me really happy that we've given through all of our collective hard work that we've given, you know, the family, and I say the greater family, not just my own immediate family, but all of our employees kind of some space to be, to do, to live their best lives um, from a, from a financial perspective. Um, but from a creative perspective, I mean, I don't really think that, you know, when, when you talk about somebody, somebody's trajectory at a company in Silicon Valley, most people are here for, you know, two years and then they jump or three years and they jump. Like people have been with ID tech for, you know, 15 years, 20 years. Um, and yeah, that's your case, really, 20 years. really special, you know? Yeah. So look, I think a lot of people, I want to switch to life after the Anthos investment, because I think a lot of people are sitting here and they're getting calls like you did, maybe not the same frequency, but they're getting calls from private equity groups that says, Hey, let, you know, let us, let us invest, maybe a minority, maybe a majority. Yeah. Uh, you'll get the second bite of the apple downstream. And frankly, I've done a lot of interviews. Uh, Ryan Moran comes to mind where uh, it ends up being a disaster. 
the yeah. the private equity com- company ruins the culture. They bring in outside management. The new managers know what they're doing. It's like a big disaster. Yeah. And so, in your case, it sounds like the opposite. So, I want I, I mean, I want you to tell me what that was like uh, once Anthos invested. Like, wh- what changed? Okay. Um, there is going to be more emphasis on growth, right? So that took some getting used to. And part of, I think one of the lessons that I learned is when you are shift to the growth mindset, that's great, but you cannot do it at the expense of your culture you got to make sure that communication doesn't break down. You have to bring people with you. And yeah, like the real world is that you're going to start bringing in some people from the outside, but you damn well have to make sure that those people that you're bringing in are really good cultural fits. I learned the hard way. Tell me right? how. D- describe um, the story. Did you bring someone in? You, you bring people in with the idea. And like, this is me when I was a little bit younger. Um, we You bring people in who think that maybe, you know, they know more than you, or there's, there's, oh yeah. Um, they might, you might start doubting yourself thinking like, Hey, you know, maybe we're doing everything wrong. Maybe, yeah, maybe this person does know, maybe they have figured it all out, but the reality is they may have figured it out somewhere else, but they got to figure it out here. Did that happen? Like, in your they got to work can, with, um, can you, can you tell me a story without the name of the individual? Obviously, can you tell me a story of where someone came in, and it just like, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't even matter. Like I'm just saying in, in, in any role, but like, as an example, if you bring in and I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit direct without being direct. Uh, Cause sure. I don't want to name names, but like, if you bring in somebody that say all of a sudden is going to um, run marketing for you and that, and I give that person as a leader, I give that person say, Hey, you're going to run marketing but I didn't really try them on. I didn't see how they were going to interact with our people. I didn't ensure before I gave them all that responsibility. I didn't ensure that they were meshing with the people that they were listening to the ideas, maybe giving it three to six months before we said, okay, you're ready. You're ready to do this. I just said, here, take it. And if it's a bad cultural fit, or you even may have what we kind of, you know, this isn't me, but I think this is Reed Hastings talking about the brilliant jerk, right? You can bring in somebody that may be super book smart, um, but if they don't know how to interact with people or lead people or know for us, like servant leadership and what that really is, they can absolutely create um, chaos and decay very, very quickly. And I learned that lesson. Um, How did you dig out of it though? I mean, like- um, yeah, go ahead. Again, going back to a good partner, basically, you know, I, I worked through it at the board level and worked through it with um, with our investors and our leaders, and basically just said, like, you know, we we, you know, I I waited too long to to exit some of those folks, but um, ultimately, I made the right decision. I got there, but I really, and I think our entire organization learned a lesson. Like, as you're growing, it's okay to bring new talent in, but it's got to be the right talent. And I mean, this is it's. You hear about this and, and you read about it in every business book imaginable and you hear it. You you hear people talking about it, but I do think there's, until you've actually lived it, you don't actually know how much damage can, can, can happen in an organization. Like you can melt down a company very quickly and that can happen in a sports team. It can happen in, in, any, in, in any sort of organization, right? If you have, you know, something that's working pretty well, um, we wanted to be open-minded about bringing in new talent. So we did that, but we just happened to bring in the wrong talent. And maybe those people would have been great somewhere else, but they weren't great here. So yeah. lesson learned. So, okay. So a couple of key lessons. So if you're going to take private equity money, one, um, you, you know, make sure that just because they recommend some C-level executive that's worked at some famous company, that it's a cultural fit, not only a fit on paper, but Absolutely. also a cultural fit. Yeah. Got it. Um, that's helpful. What, what else? 
Oh, number two, the second piece I took away is like expect them to want to grow. They're not going to invest a truckload of money for you to just say flat or slightly grow. They're going to want yeah, to grow. I, 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 I mean, it doesn't matter. Like majority deal, minority deal. Like there, there's going to be more more pressure than ever to grow, and that's mm-hmm. not a bad thing if you're ready to scale. It's not a bad thing if you're very mission driven. And like for us, we want to educate millions of kids all over the globe, um, and both people that can pay and people that need scholarship. And so for the way for us to like really do good and fulfill our mission is to get as many kids educated in, um, in all of these technical topics that they're really not getting an education for in school. So, um, and, and, it, and it's not easy. So for, for us to be in, in order for us to get as many kids in the pipeline as possible, we got to grow. And so it like that, the, there's a lot of alignment with our mission. Um, and, so for us, that's that's very, very helpful, right? How did you structure it? Because of course, there's a difference between being a shareholder in a company and being the CEO of the company. As I said, you and your sister were were very much co-leaders of the business. You handled sales and marketing, business development, and, and she was more on the operational she, she side. Did, is, that, um, is that right? Um, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of shared services and okay. a lot of great dialogue. I mean, she, she oversaw... Um, you know, like, like accounting, finance, human resources. Um, I was more product than marketing in general. Um, but yeah, a lot of overlap and discussion. Yeah. And so how did you structure it with Anthos? Did you, and I, and again, this is my ignorance coming through, but did, were your shares, like, were you required to stay as the in the business as employees, as a, in addition to shareholders, or could you have sort of brought in somebody else and stepped away and just, just held your share, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we like technically on, on paper, like contractually, Alexa could have gone, my sister, Alexa, she could have, she could have left. I could have left. Um, but I think that, I mean, you know, Anthos understood and, and we also, and that, that's where that trust came into play. Um, mm-hmm. They weren't, they weren't, you know, making us sign in, in ink that we had to stay. They just really believed our story that we have a lot of work to do. We really want to grow the business. And, um, and they were right. Um, I can see as an investor, how you may want to contractually um, oblige somebody to stay. But the fact that they showed us so much trust, again, was why they got the deal. So I guess that's the uh, investor dilemma, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did the strategy change? It sounds like Anthos really pushed you to go global and 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 be serious about Asia. What else changed in the strategy with the new um, partners in, in the in the Anthos? Uh, I, I would just it was it was just more about you know I, I remember actually being in a boardroom um, in our office with. Um, with my COO Joy and with Brian Kelly, so one of the investors, and we were talking about it was the, it was the first year that we had done the deal, and we were talking about growth rate, and we were proposing that we grow twenty percent, and he's like, "What's keeping you guys from growing thirty percent?" And I looked at Joy and I said, "Joy, what's keeping us from growing thirty percent?" And she just looked at me and saying, like, it was, it was a really funny moment. Just looked at me and said, I know where this is going. I, she's like, I'll get, I'll, I'll get everybody revved up. We know where the new number is now. I mean, we were making decisions pretty much like that. It wasn't like massive discussion and it was more about the challenge. And I think that year we probably ended up growing about 25%. So we didn't hit the 30%, um, but it was helpful to have that kind of stretchy mindset. Right. Um, and that's okay. Um, and I think that's one of the, you know, one of the things that we constantly grapple with as, as leaders is trying to set stretchy goals for ourselves, but you also want to feel like you accomplished something and hit a goal. And so there's a, there's a delicate balance there between making goals that are, that are stretchy, but also achievable, right? I love the, the term stretchy goals. I've never heard that before, but I love it. <laughs> what, so walk me through what, triggered the decision to sell the second time uh, effectively to emeritus yeah. what was what what triggered what changed and, so this uh, was um yeah. th- this is a 
it, it's fun for us for completely different reasons. Um, so let's walk through where we were in 2020. Um, in 2020, we were gearing up for our biggest camp year ever. Um, things were going great. We're heading into January. Numbers are looking fantastic. And then we start seeing signs in February, right? You start getting news reports coming in from Asia, coming in from all over. And then March broke and it was like literally the business just stopped. So this is COVID, right? Um, Gosh, that must have been crazy. So we had our business. Now, remember, we've already, we're already geared up for our biggest season ever, which means we've already, we already have a huge full-time staff. We've already onboarded, like, and we're, we're actively starting to train, you know, close to 2,000 instructors. We already What's have your top contracts. line revenue for the year-ending 2019 ballpark? It was 40 in 2019. Yeah, uh, rounding, let's call it, let's call it 70. 70 million. Right. So we're gearing up for our biggest season ever. And then, you know, literally the, the, the brakes just slammed on and we went from, let's just call it the 70, $70 million business to a zero to a zero dollar business. Right. Um, oh, in, in the span of, in the span of a month or two. Oh, man. Um, Thousands of employees. About, Are those contract about, employees? Full-time. The, the uh, 2000 instructors. Yeah, sure. But there's, we had still undergone, you think, I mean, we recruit people all year long to come and work at our camps. Like we're at that scale. So we have, you know, an army of, of people that are coaching them up and training on, we've built out curriculum. We've bought thousands of computers because we, mm. you know, everything is really elegant. We have contracts with 150 universities. We pay deposits, um, not to mention, you know, all the millions of dollars we spent in marketing costs, et cetera. Right. You can't get any of that back. So yeah. Talk about a dilemma. So here's, here's the silver lining though. While we, we always wanted to make a push into like the digital space, like, like delivering classes online. And we had been tinkering. Um, we had said actually in a plan in it, in it, cause I'd gone back and look at the, look at board meeting decks from, you know, previous year. So six months prior, we had said, look, our five-year projection is that we will be doing $5 million in online business. Not a big piece of our business. And it was like, okay, cool. Good job. But the bulk of our effort and, and mind share was in delivering the in-person. Well, COVID hit. We ended up pivoting within, we didn't have, you know, virtual tech. So we, we stood up a product called virtual tech camps that same summer. So all of the in-person is shut down. We stand up a product called Virtual Tech Camps, which far, far, far exceeded our expectations from a, from a sales and delivery standpoint. And we did it at an incredibly high, like, high quality so that the net promoter score was excellent. And uh, that got the investor community, like a massive amount of attention started flooding in on us. So the, the, just the, you know, the, um, the metrics behind a digital business or an online business versus in-person are completely different. Right. And the valuations that are attached to an online business versus an in-person are very, very different. So even though the virtual tech camps was considerably smaller than the in-person business, um, the valuation on that revenue, because you don't have facilities uh, fees, was just and it's completely scalable. Um, we people were, you know, coming at us left and right, saying, "Hey, we want to invest in you," even though we're a, a much smaller business from a revenue standpoint. Um, so Anthos put in more money um, to help, like, kickstart now the digital revolution at, at ID Tech, and then that got noticed, and then that's what led to the next deal which was, I had this really thoughtful guy from Emeritus. His name is Ashwin, who's the CEO. Um, he had been hitting me up on LinkedIn. We finally connected. And he and I just started conversing over a series of three months. And every call, he was asking such thoughtful conversations about our business. Um, I'm like, I like this guy. Um, very much driven by mission, by culture. And I'm like, wow, I can see myself working with this guy. I really like this guy. And 
So then this was actually, we just, you know, as the conversations unfolded in the fall, um, I was actually the one that said, you know what, we may want to talk about a bigger deal. Like we may want to actually talk about something because I can see by what you're doing. So what Emeritus does is they, they work with executive ed clients and they work with adult learners, right? Um, and they deliver, um, you know, short and long courses delivered at like skilling up. So maybe you're somebody, um, who's looking to like you, you know, maybe you're a teacher and you want to get into it, or maybe you're in this job and you want to now do data science. So they work with universities to deliver, um, these certificates to, to upskill, um, like the adult population, but we do K-12. They work with universities we work with universities, like they deliver certificates, like, you know, partnering with, you know, MIT open learning. Well, we'd like to, but we have in-person camps at MIT. So we we started just talking about this really incredible potential long-term pathway of learning. Like they could start at age seven and maybe go to age 50. Imagine like one company that is really, really guiding that learning for you know, not a year or two, but maybe a lifetime. Like we just got really excited about that idea. And so that's, that was the, um, you know, that's really what led to the the conversation, which led to the deal. It sounds like a peanut butter chocolate kind of marriage. If you've got the K to 12 and they've got the, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which was the valuation. Sorry, dogs, dogs are, uh, dogs are barking. The the puppies are hungry, man. (laughs) They're like, feed me. Uh, I'm it. so sorry. No, I'm, that's yeah, great. Yeah, they're right a little ambient me. noise. Never heard anybody. Okay. Uh, take me back to something you said earlier, which is about the the relative valuation on a dollar for dollar basis between kind of in person camps and the digital business. Can you give me a sense of like like again? It's like on a dollar per dollar um, at at the most modest measurement, it's two to one. Okay. But I think like the market, even now today, even the past six to 12 months, like the markets are even more frothy, most likely. Um, Mm. It might be three to one or four to one. And now Um, it's just because the, you know, digital, you know, digital businesses are, they're highly scalable, but I will say it's incredibly competitive. It's very, very hard to do. Customer acquisition is at an all-time high. Um, so there's, you know, you know, effectively anybody can launch a coding class. Like that's not the magic. Being able to like do it with a real opinion about, you know, pedagogy and how you teach and really driving value and getting the, cu- the customers to stick with you. Um, I think the early days prepped us for creating those experiences, right? Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, you have your, your, your 70 million ballpark doing camps on campuses, a bit of an analog business, if you'll allow me to use that expression, but, but people centrics and so forth, you go to zero in COVID, uh, right. the first couple of months of COVID, but you get some more investment and build out the digital side of the business. And, and that, because even though your revenue dropped because it was, so valuable on a dollar for dollar basis that it actually eclipsed your kind of, uh, you nailed the your story. Old valuation. If you will. Yep. You nailed the story. Um, I saw, I, I think it, you know, emeritus, uh, if, if it's okay, uh, emeritus announced or in their closing comments, they said that they were expecting, uh, annualized 45 million in revenue for the year that ended, I guess this year. Is that, is that right? Is that what they reported or is that what you reported? Yeah. I don't know what, what report like you're referencing, but, um, I'll, I'll take that at, at face value. Um, I feel that, like it was the press release, but like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not 100% been, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like, basically, cause we're not gonna like break out numbers in a, in a, in a great amount of detail. I'll just put it like this. We, um, we're going to be this incredible hybrid company of running in-person experiences. And then, but we're investing a bunch in the, uh, in the digital side and most of my mind share, because that's where we think the future is, is investing in the digital side. Um, when we put those two together, I mean, ultimately what I care about is like going back to our mission is 
delivering great experiences. However, our, our, our kids want to learn. If you want to learn in person, great. If you want to learn from, from home, great. The experiences both have to be great. And that's one thing that's really cool about our ecosystem. The entire ecosystem talks and we know how to deliver both, which makes us very special and very differentiated. Um, so um, we will be, um, when, we, when we put the digital and in-person together, um, we will be significantly larger than we've ever been um, in the history as, as opposed to if we were just doing in-person. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Because in-person, I guess, is now coming back a little bit. Yeah. Is, it, is that possible yeah, yeah. to do in-person now? Yeah, great. How did it go from you're having these kind of, you know, the LinkedIn conversation and then you're, you're, you're having good conversations with the Emeritus guys. Like you, you're like, hey, we should do something more significant. Like, did they read into that as like, okay, you want us to acquire you? Like, how did it go from well, a strategic uh, the, conversation the original- to- the original yeah. talks were let's just do some sort of a commercial arrangement where you know because they have established um, partnerships and collaborations with already with you know you know top university global universities in the world and so they were saying well can we just develop some you know pre pre collegiate certificates and ID Tech will deliver them and we'll bring the uh, partnership to the table etc and then I started just thinking like. If we're going to go through all of that and all the complexity of that, we may as well put a bigger conversation on the table. And to which, and I love this about Ashwin, um, he, he didn't bring it up before. And he's like, look, I've been thinking about it, but it was almost like, hey, we understand, Pete, like you really believe in this business. We don't want to get in the way. We don't want to distract you. Let's just, we're going to prove to you that we can deliver what we say we can. And then maybe we'll hold off on that conversation for the next 12 months. I mean, talk about being very thoughtful. That was incredible, right? And that was just another sign where I'm like, look, they're not just looking out for themselves. They're thinking about our business. So it goes back to finding you know, any entrepreneur who's thinking about maybe selling a stake in their company or bringing in capital, you got to find people that you really jive with, right? That are not just thinking about themselves and thinking about your best interest too. Um, yes. I think you got to talk to a lot of people to get to that point. Right? Yeah. I'd love to know, I'd love to know, and again, this is my ignorance coming through, but you've got Anthos as a minority shareholder. I guess they became a more significant shareholder in the whole conversion into digital. Like what, like how much of, are you having the conversation with Emeritus and, and how much is the Anthos team involved? Like, and, and do you guys draw the line? Because that must be kind of squishy, I'd imagine, where you've got this big shareholder and then you're the leader, but there's this other... Co- like, how no, do you I, mean, I think I think it was very... I mean, you know, Anthos had been in the business for six or seven years and they, you know, it. I wasn't going to bring just any deal to the table. I was only going to bring a deal to the table if I felt that I, A, wanted to work with this company that it was a very, very high quality, you know, potential organization um, to work with that my team would buy in on the cultural side because we'd already learned the lesson about, you know, the, um, you know, the downside of, of bringing in, you know, the wrong people or the brilliant jerk. So I felt that it was just that the timing was great. And there was absolutely hesitation from Anthos to be totally candid about it because they're like, wow, we're like, we're going to be the next like ed tech unicorn. And I'm like, well, I still think we can be that ed tech unicorn, but I think we can actually get there a lot faster with this partner because they've already done, they've laid some of the foundational groundwork in, in international markets. And they're, they've already, because the the roots of their business was in person. Eruditis um, was the in-person arm. And then it, then the digital, uh, the digital arm of the company, uh, sorry, the digital arm of the company is Emeritus. The in-person arm was Eruditus, but they started as Eruditus, the in-person, just like ID Tech, and over five years made this massive transformation into digital. I could see that happening for ID Tech as well. So um, it made sense strategically for us. Um, I think either path, we you know we want to be like you know Eruditus is already you know already that that ed tech unicorn multiple times over. So now the story we're telling is we're going to be the unicorn inside the unicorn, right? So how cool is that? 
Um, but now we just have resources, I think more resources to invest even go faster. Um, strategically, it's been, it's been a great move for us um, in order to usher in that change. But to go back to, you know, if, if, I'm, if people are listening to this thinking, oh, I'm going to bring in a private equity group and we're going to get the second bite of the apple, whatever. I'm assuming that when it comes to that second bite of the apple, the, the, the selling the, the, the entity on after they've invested, they should expect some tension, potential tension, because the private equity group generally are going to be financial investors who are looking for the best return on their money. And, and, and it's, it's likely that you as a founder are going to be looking for the best cultural fit, and the best strategic fit. Like that could create some tension with. Absolutely. So that's with, why, you know, we, we had to get a good valuation that, you know, um, Anthos would be, would feel good about and that I would feel good about. And so Brian Kelly and Paul over at Anthos, um, myself, like, I kind of had an idea of the number that I would feel good about. It goes back to, you know, when Anthos first invested, like at the end of the day, I knew that there would be a certain range of a number to get people on board. And if Ashwin and Emeritus couldn't hit that, then we just wouldn't get a deal done. We would just wait and, and we'd see where we were in a year or two, which is fine. That was definitely an option, but we brought a deal to the table that was good for everybody. And how did you arrive at that number? Like, what was your I don't know. Calculus? I mean, look, you, you, you pay attention to the signals that are going on in the marketplace, but at the end of the day, when you're a private company, it is ultimately the number is the number that you're going to feel good about. And the number is the number that is going to, that you feel you can get a deal done with, especially now that you have investors. Um, and I just, I actually knew what that number was in my head. Um, and I, pitched the number to Ashman and he said, I think we can get there. And I said, all right, let's keep talking. I mean, the number's not a secret, like it's in the press release, right? So do you mind yeah. if I say it? No, go ahead. <laughs> it's a big number. <laughs> so it's $200 million. Uh, and so it's a round number. I noticed that immediately when I saw it, I'm like, it's not like some arbitrary multiple of earnings. That's like, right. that's a dream number. That's a number someone has got in their mind. This is, that's what my company's worth. Was that where you were heading with, is that yep. why it's such a round number? Yeah. Well, I, I knew, I knew the number I would feel good about. And if, and I, and I told Ashwin this, like if he would have come in at a dollar less, I would have said no. Why was that a number, a number that you felt good about? What was it about that number that made you feel good about it? Um, paying attention to what's happening in the markets, like seeing what other, you know, ed tech companies were getting, like just looking at multiples, looking at the growth prospects of our business, like just putting the whole thing together. It was a pretty narrow range. Um, you know, I, I think we could have pressed for a little bit more to be frank, but I also knew that there's a lot of work ahead and we're going to need some capital and, and it just felt like the right number. Um, and I felt like, you know, if, if we would have pushed a whole lot harder, we probably would have had to get more um, complex with structure. Um, and so, you know, there, there's always a give and take there. Um, it was just, it just felt like the right number. I'd love awesome. to say it was completely scientific. It's not. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I think it's way better if it's not. I love it. Yeah. I think it's you know, awesome. at the end of the day, like what I care about is like in, in this next phase is like, I care that we do continue to grow, that we're great partners to Emeritus and vice versa, and that we do become that, you know, the, 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 the next unicorn. I think we're probably two years away from that, but, but we're going to get there and we're going to get there with their help, which is great. Which is awesome. And it's a good way to end it. Pete, I, I know your time is precious, so I want to be respectful. Where can people, if they want to reach out, is there a can they learn more about ID tech, excuse me, um, the ed tech space in general, your LinkedIn guy, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah. I mean, they could, they can certainly hit me up at LinkedIn. Um, you know, just Pete, Pete Ingram Couchy. There's not, a, not, not too many of us on the planet. Um, <laughs> they can do that. Um, you know, they can also, if they're interested in, in any specifics, they can go to info at idtech.com and just shoot us an email and that'll get routed appropriately. Um, those would be a couple ways, or, you know, it, it, you can, you know, direct message us on Instagram. Um, you know, again, just ID tech. I need to get my kids looking at ID tech camps next summer. I think it's going to be, a let's go. Cool... You got to get them, get them ready for the future. Yeah, um, absolutely. I guarantee, 
I guarantee they will learn something and they will be better equipped for the future if they go for you know one of our summer camps or one of our year-round programs, get a private tutor with us. Um, we're just all about creating that motivation so the kids want to learn more and learn more and learn more. I love it. And that's really the secret, right? So, hey, I got to run. Um, I love it. Thank Great you so much for Thanks, your time. Pete. Yeah, all right. Fantastic. Take care. It was so much fun to talk to you. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.